All right, I've got a couple more minutes with Noah Charney, and these might be some of the most fun minutes I've ever spent on a bonus episode, because very rarely do you hear about a, a crime where celebrities, uh, well, I mean, you know, O.J. Simpson aside, where celebrities are involved uh, uh, but here it is, the Mona Lisa theft. Pablo Picasso gets the spotlight the in the magnifying glass put over his works. Uh, and I don't want to spoil anything here. Let's let's get into this because I, I, I could jump the gun on a couple things here. So this is this is a great story. And it's fun mm. because lots of people know about the Mona Lisa theft. Lots of people know mm. about Pablo Picasso. But this yeah. little side story in his uh, in his biography, almost nobody knows about. And it really makes their <laughs> jaw drop. So yeah. when we did our episode together, I mentioned mm. that the idea that there are criminal art collectors commissioning the theft of works for their <laughs> private collection is almost exclusively the realm of fiction and film. Yeah. And there's like yeah. no real life examples. Well, one of the exceptions. I remember you saying that <laughs> is Picasso. Yeah. And so, so here's how it went down. Picasso's right. best friend was a Polish born poet named Guillaume Apollinaire. And the two of them were men about town, but this was before Picasso was very famous. He had moved to Paris in 1904, and he was making some waves, but he hadn't made a career for himself quite yet. And he admired an exhibit on Iberian ancient statuary that was at the Louvre Museum. And this was an exhibit that really spoke to him because he comes from Spain, the Iberian Peninsula, and he was really admiring what looked like quite abstract sculptures. They look more cubist or minimalist than anything that contemporary artists were doing. And he saw an affinity with his paintings in them. And he admired a couple of statues there in particular. And those statues would be stolen in 1907. Mm -hmm. And they were stolen by a guy named, with a great name, Honoré Joseph Géry Pierre. And this guy with, a, with a, the quadruple barrel name was a Belgian, <laughs> turns out to be a con man. Um, he also yeah. will later be a cowboy in San Diego in the wild west of the United States. But at this point, yeah, he was uh, Apollinaire's personal secretary, which is kind of like his assistant. Yeah. And he was also uh, serially stealing from the Louvre Museum. Mm -hmm. So he was doing it so often that... Um, he, I mentioned this in the previous episode, he once told his girlfriend, uh, honey, I'm going to Louvre, do you want me to pick you up anything? And <laughs> yeah. she thought he meant the shops near the Louvre, he meant the museum itself. Right. And he claimed uh, that he had wanted to steal the Mona Lisa, but hadn't been able to get around to it, and someone else got there first, and he was very annoyed by this. And he mm -hmm. claimed this in a letter that he wrote to a Parisian magazine in 1911, yeah after the Mona Lisa had been stolen. So now, now I want to pause you really quickly because sure. what's interesting about this is that he sent a lot of letters to Parisian magazines, almost, you know, obviously not like Jack the Ripper, but in a way kind of taunting. He became like he was able to somehow build himself up to be such a personality that, I mean, there's nothing like this exists in the United States now, but be able to blow him off so much, such a big personality that legal matters almost didn't stick to him. It's, yeah. This guy was really something. He was really cool. <laughs> He's a larger than life figure, absolutely. And yeah. I wish we knew more about him because it would be a great subject for a biography. But Definitely. he was outside of France at the time, so he wasn't legally accessible to the French police. So he was writing these letters 
effectively with impunity and talking mm-hmm. about how much he was stealing from the Louvre and how this guy <laughs> who stole the Mona Lisa funked up his groove and now it was going to be much more difficult. Right. So he was elsewhere, but police, without any leads of their own, knew of his association with Apollinaire and Apollinaire's mm-hmm. association with Picasso. And he had separated from Apollinaire, had been fired a few years prior. But mm-hmm. because of that association, the police show up and they arrest Apollinaire and Picasso on mm-hmm. suspicion of involvement in the Mona Lisa theft, because Mona Lisa is mm-hmm. still missing at this time. This is in 1911. Right. And the two of them are interrogated by the police, and they're both terrified. And Picasso is so terrified that he claims he has never even seen Apollinaire before. And the two were best friends. There's photos of them sitting together. They were men about town. It was like, <laughs> right. it was totally ridiculous. Yeah. And then it's clear they had alibis for the night of the Mona Lisa theft. It's clear they weren't involved in that, but they were totally scared shitless. And then they get mm-hmm. released mm-hmm. and they go back to um, Picasso's apartment. Mm-hmm. And we know what happened because Picasso's girlfriend at the time, Fernand Olivier, kept mm-hmm. a journal that she published. And she said she thought it was always weird that most of Picasso's art collection was on display except for these statue heads, which he kept in a wardrobe. So they're like stuffed under his underwear or his socks. (laughs) And they pull them out and they put them in a suitcase. And at night, they're determined to take them and throw them in the Seine River to dispose of the evidence because they did steal these from the Louvre. But they Mm -hmm. come back and they couldn't bring themselves to do it. And eventually Apollinaire returns the statue heads to the magazine for which he is the art critic. And he did it in a mm-hmm. disguise. I'm imagining like a Groucho Marx nose and mustache, like <laughs> yeah, not, not a master of disguise. But <laughs> yeah. that's how they're, they're, they're back at the Louvre today. But so uh-huh. what happened back in 1907? It seems that Géry Pierre stole the statue heads. At least he claimed he, he stole them by himself. But there are problems with his story. One is he claims that he put two of them under his trench coat. And left, and he had such big balls that he stopped and asked a security guard where the nearest exit was before Mm -hmm. leaving. Now, these statue heads are too big, cumbersome, and heavy for anybody to actually do that. So he had to have accomplices or take multiple trips. Also, Mm -hmm. he claimed that he didn't know which what he was stealing. He just saw them and he took them. But these Mm -hmm. are the exact statue heads that Picasso had commented on admiring so much a few years earlier when they were on display. And it turns out that they were not in part of the permanent collection. They were not on display when they were stolen. They were in storage. So somebody mm-hmm. had to actually go proactively looking for them. Wow. And okay. um, he had to have had accomplices, whether they were in the museum with him or helping him with the theft. And it couldn't have been anyone but Apollinaire and Picasso. So we have um, Picasso also, I think it was in the 1960s in a Life magazine article, sort of jokingly reminiscing about the time that that they stole something from the Louvre. Um, But this is uh, an example of someone who almost, I mean, he certainly commissioned the theft. It's beyond plausibility that he didn't. And he was probably physically involved with it as well. But there's a fun coda. And the fun coda is that this theft helped kick off modern art. Because... His interpretation of these statue heads appears in his 1907 painting, Les Demoiselles d'Avignon, which is considered his first masterpiece and the first modernist painting. So we have an integral element to the creation of modern art through this famous art theft that too few people know about. Well, I will tell you, like what I love about this is that you can almost in some ways the way that um, 
uh, Perugia got off for being, um, you know, a hero in Italy, and they were like, oh, we got to let this guy go. I mean, he stole from the Louvre, but a lot of people were stealing from the Louvre at the time, right? So uh, can we really fault him? I mean, you could make an argument that like, yeah, but we have all this other art for it. And by the way, we got the statues back, right? So... What's the real harm here? You know, wasn't more good done out of this crime than others? Don't you have to break a couple of eggs to make a good omelet? You know, you could definitely make that argument here, which is what's so interesting about it. <laughs> you, know, you, you, you say that, and it's also, there's some countries that have funny laws related to theft. And England mm. was one of them. And until not that long ago, if someone who stole something or tried to steal something from a museum could argue that they never intended to permanently deny the owner of their property, uh-huh. then they could get off on this. And one example of it was um, the trial of Kempton Bunton, who stole along with his son Goya's portrait of the Duke of Wellington. There was a movie mm-hmm. called The Duke that came out a few years about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and. He claimed successfully that he never intended to permanently deny England of its treasure. He always planned to return it. And this was a sort of get out of jail free card. And so this is, was an issue until fairly recently in the UK. And you, you would have to demonstrate a, a prosecuting attorney that they never intended to return it. Otherwise, you could get it, they could unget themselves out of trouble. <laughs> so, right. yeah, it's, it's right. a good point. Yeah. Um, and yet, then the Louvre wasn't able to keep track of their own stuff. They had a lot of stuff there. I can see how that argument would work. As yeah. as a professor of art history, I'm not allowed to say <laughs> I do not endorse <laughs> yeah. theft under any circumstances. But I can sure. see where people are going with that. Yeah, I mean, it's look, it's cost benefit analysis, right? You lost a couple statues for a little bit, but we have the Cubist movement. So, I, you know, I mean, you know, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Uh, I want to put a little little epilogue here. Uh, you know, you said that this art thief, Gary, uh, uh, Gary, Jerry, uh, he ended his days as a cowboy in San Diego. I know. Don't you want is to hear more about that? Yeah. Is there, is there anything else? Or is that just, is that all oh, we man. know? I, I wish I could find that. That was as much as I could find out. Cause it sounds like Ugh. he sounds like such a larger than life character. It would be great to have a biopic about him. Cause what yeah. a kooky guy, but that was all I was able to find. I hope someone else can pick that up and, and find out more. Uh, yeah. Cause I can't imagine him just being a regular cowboy. I see him as like a disco cowboy with like the frills and the, you know, the hat, you know, uh, a, a little flamboyant. I can to see him having flash and flare, you know, <laughs> as a cowboy. Well, this is a great story. You know, it, as you said, it is one of those that uh, not a lot of people know, but one that people should. So thank you for this extra time. Oh, it's my pleasure. And thank you for having me. I, you know, I write too many books. I'd love to be back in the future. Absolutely. We'll have you back.